Okay, let's make a start. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, dear listeners. I am Sandrine Soub, your host. You're on the podcast Research Lives and Cultures. And today I have the pleasure to have with me uh, Mika Shakiba. And she comes from a long, long way away for me, who is in the UK. She's based in the School of Biomedical Engineering in the Faculty of Applied Sciences at the University of British Columbia. Did I get this right? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, School of Biomedical Engineering is co-owned by the Applied Sciences and Faculty of Medicine. So we're, we're quite interdisciplinary. Okay, that, that's, that's a good starting point because many, <laughs> many of our researchers are often challenged by the idea of interdisciplinarity. So, Nika, tell me a little bit about the early years of your life in research. I think my research life probably started back in high school. <laughs> And I had promised my parents, I'm not going to be an engineer because both of my parents are engineers. Uh, they're both electrical engineers. And I told them, I'm going to do something different. But uh, I think as we started to approach university, I realized I just love physics and math too much. I couldn't not do engineering. And so when I came across Peter Zanstra's group, um, who at the time was at in Toronto, I realized that, you know, engineers can do biology. We could do basic research. And so I, I did my PhD in the stem cell bioengineering world. And it was focused on a very fundamental biological question. And that kind of set the stage, I think, for my independent research lab. So we program DNA and we upload it into stem cells and we want to understand the social lives of these stem cells. So what do you think is for you the, really the, the driver in your, in your research life? I suppose it's somewhat cliche, but I think I joined research and science for the feeling of discovery. Like you're on the frontier, right, of, of the unknown And that's such a cool feeling. You're basically an explorer in whatever field that you've decided is your passion. Um, so I came for that sense of discovery, but I think I really stayed for the mentorship side. I think that's where I derive a lot of my value as a researcher is this impact that I can potentially have on peers on the next generation of researchers, whether they be in academia or, or other, other realms. But I think that's been a, a big part of kind of my identity and my motivation. So what, was this much influenced with the, your own experience as a, as a PhD student and, and postdoc? Often we, we learn to be in the research environment based on the experiences that we have. So we may have worked with amazing people and we want to emulate the way that they mentored us. And sometimes we may have been you know, managed by people who were not so great and we are trying to go very far away from their own practices. So, so in your case, what do you think has been the fuel of the way that you want to be as a mentor to others? Oh, absolutely. I think the mentors that have contributed to my development, both professionally and personally, so even early days, right, looking at my own parents and their influence as engineers, um, all the way through to you know, my, my PhD and my postdoc, There's been some very key players that have, you know, helped direct me left or right or, you know, helped me pick up the pieces when I couldn't make decisions or, or when challenges have happened. And that is certainly something I, I hope to emulate. And because I've experienced firsthand how much impact you can have on others uh, as a mentor, And even peers, like peer to peer mentorship has been hugely influential for me. So I think just, uh, as you said, emulating that, wanting to pass that forward, pay that forward, I think that's kind of ingrained in the academic culture, and I'm proud to be a part of that. The last thing that you said about the peer-to-peer -peer mentoring is really interesting because I just launched a program with a new research leader within a university, and I've done lots of interviews of, uh, of research fellows, and there is often this thing of you're asked to demonstrate your independence as a research leader. And there is, for many, a sense of isolation that can be built, although people are asked to work collaboratively. Can you tell us about your own approach of building this peer-to-peer -peer mentorship? For me, the best mentorship has happened organically. So I think it's a, a matter of kind of 
taking every opportunity to interact with people. And, you know, I'm not a very extroverted person. I'm actually more introverted than extroverted. So it takes a certain amount of energy and, you know, conscientious investment to, to kind of build that network. But I think my approach has, has been to be very direct about it, right? To really put a time investment in it. So I try to immerse myself in all the opportunities where people like me or people not like me who are my peers um, can come together to do great things in our community. So one example of that has been through all the outreach initiatives. I became very involved with science communication to you know youth and to the public and to running a lot of these events where we try to get young people excited about science, about stem cells. And through those initiatives, I became very much connected with other people who are maybe a little bit younger than me or at the same stage as me, or maybe a little bit ahead of me. And that became a huge part of my peer-to-peer network. And we still stay connected. It's really cool to see people going to different directions after that experience, whether it be academia or not. It's funny because I used to run a lot of workshops to motivate and to to support postdocs to get involved in in outreach and public engagement. Some of them had a sense, well, you know, it's like, where, where do I put my energy? You know, mm-hmm. doing the outreach is not what's going to get me, you know, an academic position. And when you look at the complexities of what is required to transition in research life, what is your own way of deciding the opportunities to take? That's a great question. It's complicated. I don't know that I have the right answers, but I can tell you kind of my approach. And I definitely was not strategic about this, but it just happened to work out. But my general heuristic for deciding what to spend my energy on was just what am I passionate about? And for me, you know, science communication and outreach um, was a way to recharge my batteries in a way. I think a lot of the time spent in the lab and doing research can be very grueling. There's lots of ups and downs. You know, there's certainly lots of failure. Things don't go your way. There's a lot of uncertainty. And so science communication and outreach opportunities became this very tangible strategy for me to remind myself why I'm excited about science, because you have to communicate that passion. If you're talking to young kids, you really got to you know, communicate what's what's exciting about what you're doing, what's exciting about the scientific endeavor, and just having to put that into words and to communicate that to other people was a really nice mental exercise for me to just, you know, touch base with the, the roots of my motivation over and over again. So it actually became a very good way for me to bolster my, my trajectory and to keep me going on that trajectory. I didn't realize it, but as I was doing this and channeling my energy into these initiatives, it became part of my brand. It wasn't intentional, but actually was a really great happy accident because when it came time for me to search for academic positions, that was something that I was already kind of known for. I had already built up a network um, in Canada and beyond that recognized that I was this person who would champion science in the community and in society to some extent. And it became helpful, I think. It's interesting also this this idea of where do we find the source of energy? And I always use the term what gives you joy. I, I can very much relate to you because when I started doing outreach, for me, it was during my postdoc. And yeah, you may get lots of failed experiments, but when you run a, a session with a group of young people and you get them really intrigued, excited or whatever, about the scientific ideas, it gives you a buzz that refuels the batteries to go and face the failed experiments. Exactly. Would you say that it's helped you to shape the way that you also communicate to the research community in the sense of, you know, when you write a grant, when you write a fellowship, you need to communicate in a way that, you know, your peers will understand what you're trying to do. And and the people reviewing your grants are not necessarily those who are absolutely from the same discipline. Do you feel that it's it's helped your way of communicating? A hundred percent. I don't hesitate to to say how impactful it has been. I think through these experiences of having to communicate my science from different angles to different populations, some of which may have a scientific background more than others. It's been a nice exercise in scientific storytelling, as I call it, and as I try to encourage my own students to immerse themselves in. 
But I think the storytelling aspect of science is such an important part of grant writing, of, you know, presenting at conferences, but also, you know, science communication to a broader audience. And I've kind of learned to use all of these opportunities to try telling the story of my science in a different way. So I, I, I play with it a lot. I use them as kind of fun exercises to try new ways of telling the story and see what sticks. It's it's a work in progress and an evolving uh, storytelling plan, but it's definitely helped me. And it just becoming comfortable to to articulate these things and becoming comfortable standing in front of you know strangers and talking or writing about my science. Um, these are kind of soft skills that we don't develop until we actually immerse ourselves in the opportunities to do so. So it's been absolutely a runway to get me to a place where I could write grants and you know do oral presentations with more confidence. Could you could you give us an example of maybe how the secondary impact of this public engagement and outreach in the way it's uh, shaped? the way that you were seen externally, the whole visibility of your research? Yeah, there was this nice opportunity to do a sort of panel where we were discussing stem cell research and balancing the hype and the hope around stem cells. And so as part of that panel, I gave a, a lecture on, you know, stem cells 101. What are stem cells and how far have we come in understanding and utilizing them clinically? Um, and that session was actually recorded and they videotaped us and, you know, posted this online as part of the RCI science um, website. And I didn't realize it, but, you know, it had been seen more broadly. And I was later approached by, you know, a talent agent, so to speak, who had seen this video of me and thought I was such a great speaker and then invited me for an opportunity that was based in the U.S., for example. So, I, I definitely think, you know, we put these, we put our energy out there, right? We put our, our face out there through these things. And that if it's a genuine passion that you are expressing, that it will resonate with other people. And then it will have impacts on opportunities that are very tangible, as well as your brand in general, that you won't, you can't anticipate until later, right? So, I don't think it can be understated that these opportunities, if you like them, if you enjoy them, if you find them as ways to develop your skills and to build your network, if all of those things are true, then I don't say no to those opportunities. I I tend to say yes to all of those opportunities, which is it can be a problem on its own. In a way, it's kind of a, an investment that you make and you don't really know whether there will be a reward. But yes. as long as it's you do it with the congruence of doing something for your visibility that is within your own value, where you're contributing in a way that makes sense to you. Yeah. And there's immediate gains. It's very fulfilling, I think, to be communicating to other people about science and to see their eyes light up, right? Or for their innate curiosity to be awakened, that is really rewarding for me. And so it's an immediate positive feedback, often way more immediate than the research and the science that we do, where, you know, we kind of put those publications out there and then, you know, there's no promise that they will ever be truly impactful in the world. We hope that they are, but it could take your lifetime or more for them to be. Whereas these opportunities are immediate positive feedback. So I, I try not to think about them as investments. I, they are, but I don't try to think about beyond that immediate impact, what kind of greater uh, return on investment will I have? And, and when the return on investment happens, because it will, when it happens, then it's a happy surprise and it's a bonus. So I'd like to move on now to maybe asking you a few questions about the you know the setting up of your research group can you explain a little bit how you went from working as a postdoc or as a fellow to starting to establishing your own team i started my postdoc back in 2018 and i had set myself a very explicit timeline you know for personal reasons i had decided that i don't want to spend more than 2 years doing my postdoc and I was, uh, you know, living away from my husband at the time, and, and that was definitely one of the factors that I considered when setting this timeline and these goals for myself. So I was on the academic job market 
looking only for positions in Canada right out of the gate, right as soon as I had started my postdoc. And I was very explicit about that plan, that ambitious goal with my postdoc supervisors, and they were quite supportive and it couldn't have happened without their help. But I was, you know, looking actively for positions since the start of my postdoc. And by 2020, I had job offers and, you know, was in a a nice position to then think carefully about where I would want my professional and personal life to be based And ultimately, I decided that that would be at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And I've never been a West Coaster. You know, I've I've lived um, entirely on the the more Eastern side of North America my whole life. So it was definitely a climate sort of difference. It was a cultural difference of the West Coast lifestyle, suddenly being immersed in nature and mountains. But it's been a really great change. And, and now my research program, you know, started in July of 2020. So we're coming up to just about two years since our inception. And it's been it's been fun. It's been a roller coaster ride. There's definitely ups and downs, but it's been a really great experience overall. I'm really impressed and how intentional you were from the start of your postdoc, because I've worked with postdocs for many, many years. And I used to run the, the postdoc induction in my previous institution. And often, you know, people start on the project as a postdoc and they feel, well, you know, I've got two or three years of funding. I'll just focus on the research and I'll think about what I want to do, you know, later mm-hmm. on. You had a very different attitude from the start, but also you communicated your intention to your supervisor in a very deliberate way from the start. Yes. Yes, And I think that's uh, that's quite unusual from day one saying, okay, I'm not going to hang around as a postdoc for a very long time is is actually pretty bold. It is. I think in hindsight, uh, yeah, it's quite bold. But I think saying that goal out loud is what I needed to make it a reality and, and to hold myself accountable to it. And, and, you know, to be fair, I had taken the complete opposite approach in my PhD so I did a seven-year PhD, and I definitely taken my time to just focus on the science, and I really sidestepped the question of career. I think I wanted to take a very different approach with my postdoc to use it as a runway that is like very directed on the path that I want to go, and I would put all my you know efforts into making this goal that I had set out loud happen. But, you know, realizing full well that it may not happen and that's okay. There's many other options out there beyond academia that I realized I could I could take up and that would be fulfilling, that would utilize my skills well. And that was kind of a conversation that I had in my mind going into my postdoc to try to keep myself grounded, but also directed and intentional. So what has it been like to set up your, your research group? You, you set it up in the year of a pandemic, which is like, you know, not a small challenge who is in your group and what's been both exciting and, and also really challenging in, in that, that transition from working for somebody else to actually setting the agenda. I mean, that process has been it's been interesting. You know, it's it's never a boring day. Overall, it's been it's been great. I mean, it started back in July 2020, as you said, um, you know, mid-pandemic. So the early days were quite challenging. I was very lucky to have found my first two graduate students before before any of this had happened, before we had started setting up our lab. And we had already been, you know, in discussions because they had seen my talks or they had heard about me from others or they had seen my website. Uh, and I had definitely spent time and, and money to get that website up because I realized how important that is for an independent researcher's brand to have that online presence. So I had invested on that And I think that worked. So I was able to find my first two graduate students relatively quickly, and they were already in place before, you know, July 2020. So they came in kind of rearing to go in September, which is the start of the academic year. And it was certainly challenging because, you know, they showed up and it's COVID. So, you know, lots of things are shut down. They both moved cities and and came to Vancouver. And it was also a new city to me. And it was kind of weird being in this, what felt like a ghost town, you know, a lot of the stores were were closed or, you know, the the restaurants were closed. Campus seemed rather empty. Um, there was restricted access to our research building. Lucky enough, you know, we there's only three of us. So we were able to social distance and, and follow all of the health rules at the time relatively easily. But it was uh, weird going from 
you know, being in Boston with this very sort of dynamic and, and energetic scientific environment to, uh, you know, a building that was empty because of the pandemic and having to keep my first two graduate students motivated and, you know, telling them that this is not how it always is, you know, yeah. science, <laughs> science. What's a challenge, yeah, gosh. Absolutely, for them to keep them in that headspace and keep them energized to want to do the science that they signed up to do. That was definitely one of the challenges. But the two of them, Omar and Kieran, were were quite instrumental in laying the foundations of, of our team and of our science. And so we've been able to grow. So the next year, we, we, you know, we brought on two more graduate students, Vivian and Ali. And then this year, we're bringing on three. You know, we're growing. It's fun to see that. We also have been really lucky to have very energetic and ambitious undergraduate students join our team, which, again, is, is kind of led by my graduate students who have been eager to be mentors even so early in their careers. Uh, and so we've had a number of really talented undergrad students that have come through, like Karen and Janella and Sonali and now Ipek. Um, so we're we're excited to be growing and continuing to, you know, become more diverse. I think the other thing that I would say is that we're quite interdisciplinary. So as a biomedical engineering lab who's based in, you know, a department or a school that's owned by the faculties of medicine and applied science, that interdisciplinarity is woven into the design of the program and of our identities. And so half of my lab come from, you know, traditional life sciences training and background, and the other half comes from engineering backgrounds. And so it's been fun and also challenging to see my trainees have to pick up skills that are outside of their core expertise. But it's also really cool to see what happens when people who are not traditionally, you know, biological or biomedical researchers bring their ideas and a fresh perspective to the problems. There are lots of really interesting points in, in what you're saying. I'm really impressed by the fact that you had the basically part of your team already set up before the start. How did you manage that? You know, I think a lot of these things that have fallen into place for me have just been serendipitous. I honestly didn't have some grand plan for that. Just like I didn't have a grand plan for, you know, my science communication and outreach and how it would fit into my academic trajectory. It just happened. You know, my understanding of it is that they, you know, attended one of my talks that I happened to be at their university and give a talk I was interviewing there. And they saw that talk, you know, for one of them. And they just reached out to me basically immediately after and said, you know, I really loved your talk. I'd love to join your lab and I responded saying, you know, I don't have a lab yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm just interviewing. But, you know, if you're interested, follow up in six months. So he did. Um, I remember the second student, I think, had, had heard about me from, you know, another member of, of the Biomedical Engineering Network and had seen my website. And so it just happens, I think. So it's a, for me, it's just a matter of putting my energy into these things that I'm passionate about, right? You know, which is telling my scientific story in, in whatever venue I can. And I think that enthusiasm and that energy comes across and it's, it resonates with people, as I said. So, you know, these are examples of how that takes shape in your academic career. One of the things that you've done also is to have this external visibility through your website. Remember in my, my previous institution, we had done a lot of work on getting postdocs to have their own webpage where they could tell their narrative, you know, ahead of moving on to another institution or ahead of receiving a, a fellowship. And, and in a way here, it's showing that the energy that you put in creating that external visibility can play a role in the way that you are showcasing your enthusiasm and showcasing, you know, what, what you're about to people beyond those that you just meet in person. It's a very accessible medium for you to kind of put down who you are, right? As much as you can and, and capture your scientific niche to capture who you are beyond that, you know, your multidimensional identity, which for me also featured the sort of outreach and the science communication side of me. And I think that also shone through. I had been very explicit about including those goals in my website. So I had a page of my website dedicated to advice to a scientist, which was another sort of initiative that I had started with my postdoc supervisor. And so I think that also resonated with people because I would get emails from students 
who are interested in joining our lab who would say, you know, I saw advice for scientists. This is one of the reasons why I'm reaching out to you because it's clear that you care about being a mentor and not just a scientist, which I think is a really important distinction between being an academic and being a researcher in other domains. What do you think you did really well during these first years of setting up your team? Because you describe setting up a research group, you know, in the middle of a pandemic and There's been lots of reports and surveys about the mental health situation of research staff or PhD mm -hmm. students and so on. When you look at this data, it doesn't make for you know easy reading, really. What do you think is your way of creating positive and supportive research culture within your own team? I reflect on this a lot. I really put a lot of, of my brain energy and time on this question of how to foster a positive environment that allows all of my trainees with their you know, interdisciplinary and unique backgrounds to thrive and to reach their potential. And I think my realization is certainly that I'm not perfect, that I'm definitely you know, making mistakes. But I think the one thing that I'm doing well is that I'm trying to improve, right? And I'm always trying to evolve. So I think one of the ingredients that I've been very intentional about incorporating into our our team is that we are a team and that what we do is decided together and that we will build in time into our research lives to reflect on what's going well and on what we would like to change. And that we can only do that through a sort of safe environment where people can make mistakes and own up to those mistakes or, you know, call other people out for their mistakes in a constructive and healthy way. And so my trainees have no qualms telling me when they don't like something, right? You know, you know, maybe I've made a decision or we've done something recently that they don't like and, you know, they want to change that. And I'm all ears for it. It's not always easy to hear that kind of feedback, right? But I think that's a key ingredient to building a positive research culture that I'm that I'm thriving to do. So I can't say that I have all the answers, but that's kind of been my approach so far. The other sort of aspect of that that you touched on, which is the mental health side, I've been very deliberate about that. One of the things that we've done to, to kind of capture our goals for our research culture is to put together our lab manual. And as part of that lab manual, which is a living document that we've all contributed to as a team, we've written down our lab's mission statement, our vision statement, our values, and also how we want to handle mistakes. And so I think just putting it down has been really great. But as part of that document, I've also you know, dedicated a section to mental health. And I think part of it is to make a safe space where people feel that if they want to share or if they want to lean out for support, that they can do so. And I think we collectively in the world um, need to normalize those discussions about mental health, especially in academic settings, because you know it's no secret that graduate students are at an increased risk relative to the general population for anxiety and depression. Um, so I was very explicit and transparent, you know, sharing with my students, um, you know, my own challenges dealing with anxiety as a graduate student, which was quite debilitating for a number of years. And, you know, only recently I've started to get a handle on it. But I think it's it's been helpful to be able to talk about it to other you know, graduate students and my peers as it was happening. And I hope that I can foster an environment where my own trainees and then, you know, those around us can engage in those discussions in a healthy way. I've been doing um, quite a lot of coaching with some uh, research fellows and, and new academics. And one of the themes that keeps coming back is the issue of how do I deal with uh, you know, a PhD student who has you know, lost motivation or isn't really doing well? You know, it's like you know, poor performance mm -hmm. or is really not engaged and What's interesting about the discussions that I've had about this recently is that often it's people who really are trying to create a really positive culture, are really trying mm -hmm. to change, you know, practices maybe that they've experienced themselves. But sometimes they face a situation where there is somebody not turning up at meeting, not doing something that they said that they were doing. And then they are faced with, well, I am a manager as well as a research leader. And how do I handle these really hard conversations? I would be interested to hear your take on that because being supportive doesn't mean 
not saying that somebody isn't doing a great job. Yeah. I mean, I've had these conversations too, um, sometimes with my trainees and I think my approach, I don't know, you know, how effective it is. I guess we'll have to wait and see, but my approach so far has been to try to lead with empathy. We're all well-intentioned where we try to set up these positive research cultures, but inevitably cannot control everything, right? And, and the members of our team, just like us, will will wake up some days and not have good days, or we'll have external things happening that are not related to the research environment, perhaps, that are influencing their mood, their motivation, and all of these things that then reflect in their research progress. Or sometimes, you know, it's, it's you know, within the research environment, as much as we try to develop a positive culture, it doesn't always happen because there's so many other variables that can that can affect that beyond our well-intentioned strategies to mitigate. So I think my approach has been to lead with empathy and to try to take a step back when I talk to these to any student that seems to be having an off day or an off week or you know doesn't seem so motivated. At every meeting, I ask my students, you know, how is everything else? You know, is everything great? You know, how are your courses? How is everything else outside of the lab? And it's not really a space for me to probe. And I'm very clear to them about that. They, they don't have to share anything, you know, that they don't feel comfortable sharing. But it also gives them an, an opportunity to, to talk about things if they're having struggles that they think I can help with. And sometimes they do, you know, tell me about other challenges that they're dealing with. And it's an opportunity for me to kind of direct them in the right direction in terms of resources of support and, and that sort of thing that's available at the university and more broadly in the community. Um, but other times it's just, it's nice to commiserate, right? Because we all have bad days. And I tell them too, you know, like I woke up today and I just did not have the motivation and I'm just staring at my emails all day. That's normal. That's a part of human existence. We're not always 100% motivated. I mean, in a way, it's almost creating a moment of pause, Yes. So that, you know, the meeting with the PhD student or the postdoc isn't just about the experiment, not just about the science, but actually, you know, just asking how people are. And it's it's something that is so subtle and simple, but in the busyness and the, in the whirlwind of, you know, all the stuff we've got to do, we, we may forget. Yes, absolutely. It's a real part of it, right? Like the humans behind the science are just as important, if not more important than the science itself, right? And it doesn't happen without them. So making sure that that person can perform to the best of their potential is, is critical. So that's kind of the strategy. I think empathy is really key. Sometimes you have to push more, right? Part of your job, it's not just to nurture and support, right? Part of it is to really challenge your students. So when I think that someone is kind of not on their game, and they can be, and I see that they're motivated, but they're just not directing that energy effectively. I'm also very, you know, open about that. I tell them, you know, these are things that you're doing well, but these are things that you can certainly improve on, right? And, and so I, I challenge them to reflect and to be iterative in their own approach as much as they are with me, right? <laughs> they do the same for me. I like this idea of being iterative. It's a good word. We try things, you know, in the research context, but also iterative in terms of our approach of doing things, of interacting it's a good way of thinking about it. Um, so if you think about the status quo, if you want, of your career and where you are now, what have been the things that have helped you to really progress towards your leadership? And what's been the things that may have hindered your, your progression? Although you probably feel at this point that you're progressing at, at a pace that is working for you. I think the challenge is often one that's internal. Um it's really easy to kind of look around at the broad scientific, you know, community around the world and to see stellar scientists who are, you know, making leaps scientifically or, you know, in other ways like teaching or, or outreach and other sort of dimensions of what it is to be a scientist and to constantly compare and say, you know, what I've done is not good enough. I have to keep pushing. Um, so I think that is always there, that sort of internal turmoil um, that there's more to do. Science never sleeps. So it's quite easy for it to take over your brain, your time. It can really bleed into other aspects of your life. So that's been a big challenge, I think, just trying to set those healthy boundaries in work life. I think that's a, a struggle that, you know, a lot of early career researchers face because we we tend to feel that we have to say yes to everything that we have to be people pleasing, 
right? Um, that we we have to take on all of these extra tasks so that we can, you know, establish ourselves and be known as leaders. And I think that's enriched in women, right? That's a that's definitely something that I've heard a lot from my own mentors. So that's been, I suppose, a hindrance and a sort of internal battle that always happens. Um, another one is certainly imposter syndrome that has not gone away for me. It's been around for a while and I don't think it will go away anytime soon. And so just learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. I think that's part of the approach that I've decided to take for now. And I, I completely relate to it. <laughs> Building this resilience, what, what do you think has been key for you in learning to live with the uncomfort in some ways? I'm not always good at it. I have my days where it's it's all consuming and it really sets the mood of the day that I'm just going to be always reflecting on these things I could be doing more, could be doing better. But I think in general, the approach has been to bet hedge, I think, to not place all of my value in this one dimension of my life, which is my scientific career, but to continue to invest in the other aspects of who I am both personally and professionally. And I think when you bet hedge in that way, then it's more likely that things will go your way or that you'll have positive advancements in at least one of those dimensions. And then it starts that motivation cycle. I've been learning more. I've been trying to learn more about how to stay motivated. And my understanding is that it's very much a cycle. So there's an action that kind of leads to some sort of positive uh, feedback and that you know motivates you again. And so I find that this kind of cross-fertilizes in the different dimensions of my life. And it can be quite small, you know, something as small as I, I taught my cat a new trick. I feel so motivated, <laughs> right? And, and it just motivates me to get up and have, um, you know, another positive impact in another dimension of my life. Or, you know, to just spend time outside. I think spending time in nature has been a hugely important part of my life in the last two years, right? Having moved cities and actually countries in the pandemic, having been away from my partner during much of that time, being in around the mountains and the forest and, and the ocean has been really helpful to kind of recharge my perspective. One of the things that, uh, that we often discuss in the workshops that I have with early career researchers is this idea of confidence. And often I say, well, just forget confidence. It may come, it may not come. Stop yeah. thinking about it. That, that's often yeah. my take. What's your own way of thinking about that concept of confidence? Because we often talk about imposter syndrome and so on, where, you know, there is always this sense of I'm not good enough. You know, I haven't published enough and, you know, I'm not enough. And always comparing ourselves to others. And, you know, this doesn't necessarily help our confidence. So what is the way that you're trying to manage the way you think about this thing, your own confidence or the way maybe you've stopped thinking about it or stopped <laughs> thinking about it in a different way? You know, I don't think I have a good handle on confidence. I think what I do is to try to emulate what I think confident people look like around me. And I think one of the things that has helped is that as part of my mentor network, I have sort of mid-career researchers that are, you know, a few steps ahead of me in their career. You know, one in particular that comes to mind is just so bold with his ideas and not afraid to throw them out there. Is you know, sometimes they seem so wacky, but you know, he's not afraid to throw them out there and good things happen because it ends up rallying and motivating people around him to also want to work towards those goals. So I think um, I've tried to emulate some level of that to the best of my abilities. Like, it's okay to come up with these kind of big, bold ideas. Some of them may be ridiculous and ludicrous and never amount to anything, but it's okay to throw them out there because sometimes they will lead to big things and that can be a game changer for you as a as a professional it's a really important thing and often for early career academic where you may have a fellowship on the projects that you know two or three years so it's kind of a quite small scope and in a way building the umbrella of the research that you're going to get known for is the next step. So this yeah. idea of, you know, being really bold with your ideas is part of the process of building the research vision that maybe you have or you don't have in your first academic role. Maybe you've created a narrative for the job interview, but actually believing in that narrative and believing in that vision is something else. 
Yeah, that's half the battle, right? I think what's kind of funny now that I'm thinking more about it is that that part of the confidence has come from my team. So I think I've kind of taken this approach where we're less hierarchical. I, I let see myself less as like this person who's the all-knowing, omniscient being of our lab. And I've encouraged my trainees to kind of step into more of leadership roles scientifically. And so they have been very active in um, coming up with ideas for projects, in reaching out to collaborators. And a number of them have created new collaborations that are kind of born out of side projects that they've taken on and now have become prominent features in our scientific umbrella. So I think that has helped, right, to share that burden of confidence and to allow my team to also shine and to have a say in how we are establishing ourselves scientifically. Of course, that means that there's a lot of balls in the air that we're juggling. And so I think part of the challenge of being their leader is to make sure that we're investing our time in keeping the right balls up in the air, right? And that they're not diluting their efforts too much either. But I think that has been one way to build my confidence, seeing them reach out to you know some leading figures in the field uh, and build these collaborations with them. It's kind of helped me also get my name out there and, and to grow scientifically my brand. Yeah, it's it's really really a powerful message for new research leader. This idea of using the team to work as a team, not just you uh, having individual relationship with each PhD student and, and postdoc. An additional layer of challenge for for new research leader is that it's about the interaction that happens between your team members. So, you know, you may have an excellent relationship with each of them individually, but the dynamics of what goes on in between all of them is absolutely key. If you are going to give advice to, to other new research leaders building their teams, what do you think you've done well yourself to actually support all this connection that happens outside of your own involvement? Yeah, that's a, that's a hard question because, again, that's one of the elements of this job being an academic group leader that we're not necessarily trained to do, right? Like we're not, you know, experts in interdisciplinary relations between humans. And so having to navigate conflict that emerges because it inevitably will, right? These are individuals with different personalities, different goals, different levels of skills in terms of interacting with other people. I don't know, like, you know, what the, what the right answer is here, but I think the approach for me has been when these situations arise, to try to have conversations with those involved and to remind them that this is a learning opportunity, that you will be faced with these situations and, and maybe even worse ones when you leave this sort of training environment that is our lab and that you have to build the skill set to be able to cope and to be able to manage and to continue your you know, professional goals and your role outside of what might be happening interpersonally. It's definitely been a learning experience. I'm constantly learning myself on how to deal with these. I think the other thing that I've been doing is, is leaning on mentors, right? So if situations arise that I don't know what to do with, because that will happen, I knock on a door of someone I, I trust, you know, someone who may have been in this position before. And sure enough, they have, right? And they tell me, oh yeah, this happens. It's, it's a normal part of being a human, being in a team. And they often have advice on how to navigate it, what they did and what they didn't do um, and what worked and didn't work for them. It's always helpful. I think it's also important to kind of create space to allow for these tensions or potential issues to bubble up more quickly, right? So earlier than later before it's turned into a large thing. So I try to, again, like I said, make that space when I have one-on-one -on -one meetings with my students. And sometimes, you know, I'll ask them to go for a walk, kind of take them outside of the of the lab environment to a more sort of neutral space and ask them, you know, you know, what's been happening? How's the lab culture been? How's the environment? What can we do differently? What can we do better? And try to problem solve together when there is a concern. Yeah, I really like this idea of, you know, a paired walk where you go and have a maybe difficult conversation outside of the constraint of an office or of laboratory. It's really really good advice. What's been the most exciting thing in the work that you've done? Yeah, I think there's a lot of fun stuff happening. As I, I mentioned briefly at the start of this, our, my lab's really interested in understanding the social lives of stem cells. 
how stem cells relate with one another and when those interactions are cooperative versus competitive, where they actively bully and eliminate each other from the cultures in which we grow them or embryonic development. So most exciting things, I think, has been seeing how each student's interpretation of that or you know application of that broader research question has led them in different directions. Some of my students are looking at this question in mouse embryonic stem cell cultures, taking really sort of cutting edge synthetic biology tools to try to understand what's going on under the hood molecularly inside these cells. Then I have, you know, other cohort of my of my students who are doing this in human embryonic stem cells and using, you know, really cool early embryo models to try to understand when this happens in development and how and asking kind of bigger questions like why would evolution have allowed for our stem cells to be battling and killing each other? It just seems so counterintuitive. So seeing that kind of take shape in, in different forms and different systems and different applications has been really fun. Um, one of the things that we took on together, actually, with my first two graduate students as we started during the pandemic and as we were twiddling our thumbs waiting for our equipment and reagents to arrive, we decided that it would be a cool opportunity to you know, pick up something computational. So one of my students had never done programming. None of us, none, none of the three of us had ever used Python but we thought it would be a good idea to learn Python together. And we established a collaboration with Dr. Maria Abushakra in, in Dr. Gary Bader's lab. And, and she's a game theory expert. She'd been using game theory to model different social dilemmas like climate change or mafia behaviors of birds. And we reached out to her and said, hey, do you think it would be possible or feasible to apply game theory to model stem cell conflicts and battles? And she was like, yeah, that actually would be really cool. And so we started learning from her. She would put on lectures for us around game theory. And we put together code, you know, of the four of us learning Python and coding to model game theory of cells. It has been really fun. That's been one of the sort of exciting, unexpected and exciting things that is another sort of take on the stem cell battles that we study. That's really, really nice project. And also I like the fact of, you know, learning together. That can be one of the challenge for, you know, new research leaders in terms of being seen as the expert and always having the students expect you to give solutions to the problems that they may have in their experimental work. But here, you know, starting from scratch together on, on something and, and learning something that you've never done before is a really beautiful way of actually building the research culture of learning together and creating something that didn't exist before you know, in terms of maybe some of the experimental work that you've done. So it's, it's a really, really nice example. Is there something that you can learn from the behaviors of your cells <laughs> to, the, to the running of your lab? Oh, well, that's a great question. I think what we're appreciating more and more is that they're a product of their context. They, they don't always battle. It kind of depends on their inner state, their gene expression, for example, but it also depends on their environmental context, whether they're in the right conditions to be battling with each other. And so I think that's truly reflected in humans, right? You know, there's always things going on under the hood that may set us up for positive or negative experiences. And we're a product of our context as well, right? Depending on what our external stressors are and our ability to deal with those stressors, or, or you know, sometimes it's just situations that are well beyond your control and you just have to do your best to navigate, you know, that could lead to positive or negative things, um, whether it's, you know, through interactions with others around you, or you know other things. <laughs> yeah, lessons from a stem from a stem cell. <laughs> if you had to do things differently, if you had to navigate your research career differently, is there something that you would do the same differently? If you had to start all over again, what would change? I think I would have been a lot more intentional about making an informed decision. I think I just I got lucky a lot in terms of interacting with the right people, the right mentors, the right opportunities that, you know, oftentimes mentors open the door for me to, but that this all happened serendipitously. Like I didn't really know, you know, that my PhD supervisor, for example, would be so great, you know, and so supportive and would be very invested in me and, and help me to reach where I am. Um, and 
I was quite young, right, when I when I made that decision to take on that PhD in that lab. So I think I probably would have been more diligent in doing my homework, right, in like checking people out that I'm committing to work with, or you know, decisions that I made um, early on to do that. It just happened because it happened luckily, but it could have happened differently. And I definitely saw that around me. Like there were certainly other graduate students in other labs and other environments that did not have the positive experience I had. And, you know, oftentimes that influenced them and and scared them away from science or academia. So I think I would have been less less trusting (laughs) that everything would just work out and and more active in, in trying to figure out where's the right environment for me? What are the right research questions that, you know, I could spend my life pursuing because there's so many questions out there right yeah many many more questions to keep you busy (laughs) i'm going to finish and and ask you a a question that matters to me greatly you've talked a lot about some of these things but what gives you joy in research yeah i think there's many things that give me joy um there's nothing like that feeling of having discovered something and no one else has seen it yet, right? Like for that brief moment in time, and this is a sort of reflection that one of my friends recently told me that they love about science. And I realized that's so true that for a brief moment, you are the only person in the world who has that piece of information about the world and how the universe works. Um, so that's so cool. And it's really hard to find in any other profession um, beyond science. But I think the other thing that I've realized more and more that gives me joy is the people the people that I'm working with, the people that, you know, have influenced me, the people that I have a chance to influence and to help them find their trajectory and achieve their goals. There's something so fulfilling in that. And and like I said before, you know, scientific discoveries can take a lifetime or even longer to have an impact if they ever even do. But the impact that we have on, on the people around us is so immediate. So it's really an opportunity to get that positive push, right? It's it's a rush. It's a positive feeling, I think, when you see someone achieving their goals. Yeah, and, and I really love to see that in the younger younger generations. Part of my take on undergrads, for example, um, I really see them as kind of my academic grandkids, where my graduate students kind of take the lead in you know the day to day supervision and in you know helping them navigate. And troubleshoot their project. And I'm more of this grandparent who really gets to <laughs> have, you know, the fun where I have like the high level discussions about what their goals are and the, the things that they like and don't like about science. And, and so that has also been a, a different kind of joy, right? Thank you, Nika. It's been such a pleasure and a really amazing conversation with you. I'm really, really grateful for your time. Thank you so much, Sandrine, for having me. This has been a pleasure. You know, your, your experiences and, and I think the, you know, the ethos that you have in the way that you're engaging your, your team is, is, you know, really beautiful and, and amazing. We try, right? We always iterate and try to stay with that ethos and do our best. So that's all we can do. That's wonderful. Thank you. A pleasure meeting you. You as well. 